How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One of the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Heat waves, melting ice caps, floods, and droughts. Climate models suggest our future will be hot, wet, and very uncertain. How good are those models as predictive tools? What can they tell us about how climate change will impact California, the Bay Area, and your neighborhood? How good are scientists at communicating extremely complex concepts and data to a public that is primarily focused on making ends meet? We have three experts here today to discuss those issues and more with our live audience in San Francisco. Andy Gunther is executive director of the Center for Ecosystem Management and Restoration. Wieslaw Maslowski is research professor at the Naval Postgraduate School. And Will Travis is executive director of the Bay Conservation and Development Commission. Please welcome them to Climate One of the Commonwealth Club. Gentlemen, thank you all for coming. Uh, Wieslaw Maslowski, let's start with you. Let's start up north in the Arctic. You're an expert on Arctic ice. Uh, what's, how fast is the Arctic ice melting, and what does it mean for the global climate system? Well, first of all, I wanted to say thank you for inviting me and giving me the opportunity to discuss uh, Arctic issues here in San Francisco Bay. Uh, we have meetings here every year in December, uh, American Geophysical Union fall uh, meetings, uh, most of the time a week or two weeks before Christmas. Uh, on the order of fifteen to 20,000 people gather here to discuss the geophysics, but uh, there is a lot of uh, focus uh, recent years on the climate change uh, in the meeting. So San Francisco actually is a center for gathering of the scientific community here on an annual basis to discuss uh, those issues. Going back to the Arctic, um, uh, there is statistics that can be used uh, to calculate some trends and some numbers uh, to present them in a more uh, quantitative way. Basically, the Arctic uh, sea ice has been melting quite dramatically over the past decades, uh, and most uh, recently, over the decade and a half or so, uh, this uh, trend has accelerated. Uh, In 2007, uh, compared to the mean ice extent uh, in the Arctic, uh, the uh, summer melt by September uh, of 2007 was uh, around 40, 43% of that mean that is based on the satellite observations going back to late 1970s. And, uh, so that means 47% of it reduction. Over 40% has been reduced in summer compared to a, a mean which is based on satellite observations for that month, September, for the past 20-something years. And... Uh, Immediately, I need to discuss a little more details about the way of quantifying those changes because uh, the satellite can see the two-dimensional changes uh, in the ice, which is defined to be ice extent. Ice extent, if you look at the National Snow and Ice Data Center, uh, nsidc.org, the definition is that this is an area which is uh, encompassed by a 15% ice concentration based on satellite observations. So everything inside a 50% contour is uh, counted as ice extent. However, in the middle of the ice pack, ice is not 100% 
at, at 100% concentration. So this ice extent does not represent the total actual ice area because within the ice extent we have less than 100% coverage. So we need to discuss uh, another term, which is ice area in summer or wind in winter. And ice area can be well defined in the in the winter because. Uh, uh, most of the uh, ice pack is covered by snow or is uh, very uh, bright and reflective, so there's no uh, uncertainty in estimating the ice concentration during winter. When uh, the melt season comes in the Arctic, which starts sometime around uh, late May, June, uh, on the top of the ice cover we get uh, melt ponds. And those melt ponds, from the satellite point of view, they look exactly the same like, uh, as open ocean. So the difference between a melt ponds for the satellite observa- uh, uh, instrument, and the open ocean is none. However, melt ponds will be formed on ice that could be two, three meters thick underneath, and the satellite will actually count this, this uh, area where there is so much ice underneath the melt pond as the open ocean. So ice area and ice concentration estimates during summer, during the melt season, are much more uncertain, which is why... NSIDC and other organizations, they prefer to stick to the ice extent, which is just basically determining this 15% concentration uh, contour and uh, qualifying this as the change. Another term which needs to come into play, and I'm trying to be brief, uh, is the ice thickness. So ice extent and ice area gives us only the two-dimensional change information. In order to understand the actual change in the ice volume, we need to understand the changes in area and changes in thickness. Observations of ice thickness are very limited and very recent. Uh, We have uh, Navy submarines that would go under the ice in the Arctic, and uh, they have instruments that are looking upward, like a a sonar, upward-looking sonar. And the submarine goes underneath the ice, and they can tell you what the ice thickness is along the, the submarine uh, track. Those are uh, available uh, from uh, basically late 50s through the 2000s. And uh, those are the best data that we have on the ice thickness from the Arctic. Let me jump in here. What does it mean? So if ice is down dramatically by 50% and there's different measurements and there's imperfections in the tools, what does this mean for the global climate system. The Arctic is often referred to as the Earth's refrigerator or cooling system. So the point is that once we determine how much ice has been melting in recent times, we can determine how much change in the uh, uh, Earth uh, energy budget is taking place due to the changing the surface in the Arctic. When you have the ice cover surviving the summer in the Arctic, most of the energy which is coming from the solar radiation on the average, uh, uh, 80 to uh, 70 to 80 percent will be returned by the ice cover back to the uh, atmosphere. When we replace a, a large portion of this air, uh, the surface by a dark open ocean, uh, the absorption goes uh, from 70 80 percent reflectivity to 70 80 percent absorption. So basically, we absorb much more energy from the sun, and the Arctic has been in the past considered to be the a buffer for Earth climate because the warmer water by the ocean were moved, advanced to the north, both to the south and the, to the to the uh, to the northern polar hemisphere, 
and uh, they were cooled along the way. And then we had the blanket at the surface, which is the sea ice and the snow on top of it, which would actually prevent much of the exchange of this warmer water, which is uh, traveling into the Arctic and the Southern Ocean, to the surface. So the heat was not removed and was trapped in the deep ocean for a long time. Now, as we melt the sea ice in the Northern Hemisphere, basically we not only have a chance to remove this heat from the surface ocean, but we also, during the summer, can absorb a lot of heat into the ocean and change the energy balance. And what do the models say about how this will affect California? Well, uh, that's a very uh, difficult question to answer, I guess. Uh, The models that are state-of-the-art models, they're global models, and they're uh, designed to run uh, centennial simulations. So most of the time, global climate models will start sometime in the late 19th century, and they'll run for the past uh, 130, 140 years, and then we'll run a couple hundred years forward in terms of understanding where the climate will go uh, based on those simulations. So the reason I'm explaining that the long-term simulations and global uh, aspect of global climate models is that uh, by necessity, the, the capability of current uh, computer computational uh, resources, those models have uh, rather low resolution in space. Uh, typical uh, grid cell of a global climate model can be on the order of 100 to 200 kilometers on a side. So from the so they don't answer the local question yet. Uh, so a- Andy Gunther, there's a gap there between where the models are, and you're involved with the Union of Current Scientists and have a PhD yourself. Um, how, how are we going to fill that gap between what the models uh, are capable of doing and policymakers who need? information to act specifically and locally in a time frame that's not decades and centuries, which is the way the climate models work. That is definitely one of the, the great challenges that we face from a modeling perspective, is if a global climate model is going to give us an average number for temperature in a box that is 200 kilometers on a side, um, that's much, much larger than most of our political institutions have to think. Um, So the problem becomes a problem, in essence, of risk assessment. And the problem, you you have to then look and say what might happen and, and make a balanced judgment about whether or not the costs of that event, uh, you have consequences times frequency, and that generates your, your impact. And so even low-frequency uh, events that have very high consequences can produ- produce great cost. Uh, so you have to make that assessment. We do this all the time. We do this all the time. Um, and uh, we have, uh, I don't know what the chances are of your home burning down, but you have mm-hmm. fire insurance. And, in fact, you never stop to think about that. You think that it's worth it to do that. Um, most of the economic analysis, in fact, virtually all of the economic analyses, are telling us that the projected costs in the future of doing nothing far exceed the investments we have to make now in order to take steps to minimize that risk. Um, if we wait until we have perfect information, I mean, I, as Wislav pointed out, global climate models are pushing the actual computing resources available to us. 
It's an enormously complex undertaking to just uh, process that much information. So if we wait, waiting and not doing anything is, is in essence making that risk, taking that risk assessment and saying that I think the risk of action now is, is, is uh, much greater than the risk of inaction. <clears throat> and yet everything that I read in the scientific literature um, and, and including you know, economic analyses are pointing us in the other direction, which is that the cost of inaction, the risk of inaction, is actually much greater than any cost associated with taking action now. Will, Travis, your job is to interact with lots of local and state and regional uh, policymakers. How are they responding to the, the time frame and uncertainty of the climate models within the constraints of their, of their jobs? Well, first off, Greg, uh, thank you for inviting me. I have to admit that when you said you wanted me to come up to the Mid-Market Street area to participate in an event called Hot, Wet, and Uncertain, I was expecting something else. Uh, <laughs> but nonetheless... Anything you'd like to do up here on stage, Will, uh, for a uh, uh, little adult entertainment on Market Street? Yeah. Uh, the... We're dealing with local governments here in the Bay Area. We have 55 local governments that border San Francisco Bay and probably several hundred special districts that deal with a whole variety of things. And when you talk to their engineers, you say, well, we're going to have a problem here in the Bay Area. We're going to have sea level rise. And the answer or the question they give me is, how much and how soon? And we have to say, well, we don't know precisely. But one of the things that I think is pushing the Bay Area to the forefront nationally and internationally in dealing with sea level rise adaptation is the legacy of our history. The Bay that we have today is a third smaller than it was at the time that California became a state. And it was filled. There were landfill operations. All of that land was filled just high enough to get it above sea level of the past. We know we're going to have accelerated sea level rise. We just don't know exactly how much. But to some degree, it doesn't matter all that much. Because all you need to do is get the sea levels up over the front lip of the landfill, and all of a sudden you see that downtown San Francisco and San Francisco and Oakland International Airports and a place which used to be called the Valley of Heart's Delight, which was fruit orchards where they irrigated the fruit orchards with uh, well water and extracted the water and the ground level sank, which is now called Silicon Valley is all in danger of inundation. We're using a rough approximation of about four-tenths of a meter of sea level rise by about mid-century, give or take 10 or 15 years, and about 1.4 meters by the end of the century. It's it's very interesting when you map those two areas. There's about an 84% correlation. So once the water gets up over the the level of the filled area, it tracks back to the natural contours of the original bay shoreline. And over time, it will simply get deeper. So uh, the bay area here, the, the local governments are trying to respond to this, but they are also having to deal with the fact that they're laying off cops and firefighters and they don't have enough money to keep the teachers in school in the fall. So the sense seems to be this is a very critical problem. Um, 
call me when you have some money to deal with it. We've been talking about Arctic ice. There's also uh, snowpack in the Sierra is a big part of the, mm-hmm. the water system, free storage for California's water system. Wieslaw Maslowski, does your, do your models have any correlation to uh, what will happen with snowpack in mountain areas of the western United States? Well, uh, I, my models are focusing on the Arctic, but I know that the global climate models predict that uh, with climate warming, there will be much more extreme and much more variability in any part of the world. So basically, like we've experienced uh, last winter, uh, very cold uh, weather on the East Coast, and now we're experiencing very warm weather on the East Coast. This kind of events will probably be occurring much more often, frequently, and throughout the, throughout the, the, the whole Earth. And yet Andy Gunther, when that happens, some people say, oh, global warming's over because it snowed in Washington. <laughs> well, weather and climate are not the same things. And, um, and, the, and indeed, the, the, the heat wave currently on the East Coast does not, is not any sort of proof of global warming. Um, you need to look at three decades of temperatures to see that, in fact, the planet is warming. Um, with regards to the Sierras, I think it's very, very important for us to recognize that our water system is devised around the snowpack. So the snowpack is a reservoir, and the water builds up over the winter, and then we capture it in the spring, and we use it in the summer and the fall, and then we count on it building up again in the winter. And we've devised our water system around that, around the Mother Nature's reservoir. Now, what the models predict for us here is that we will get more precipitation, there'll be more variable precipitation, as we pointed out, but we'll also get more of our precipitation as rain instead of snow. Another way of thinking about that is the average snow level in the Sierras will be higher. And so what that means is we then have runoff in the winter that we didn't used to have, and then we have less water in the spring and summer. So we will see less uh, uh, water available for our uses in the spring and the summer, and we will have more winter flooding. Uh, And we will get some of these events like happened in 1997 in the San Joaquin Basin when we had rain on the snowpack, and and that generates a tremendous flood uh, that we we barely had the capacity to to, uh, move past Fresno before it spread out over the San Joaquin Valley. And so those kind of shifts. Um, and I also think it's important to recognize that this doesn't mean that one day you're going to go into the kitchen and you're going to turn on the sink and no water is going to come out. Um, you know, Most of our water goes to agriculture. And of our residential water use, about half of it goes to landscaping. Um, and so there's a, a fabulous article, I thought, that was written by... Uh, the Chronicle environmental reporter, um, whose name I should absolutely know, because it's, can you believe it? I'm referring to someone's work, and I, I can't remember their name. It'll come to me in a minute. Um, it's called uh, The Great Thirst, and, um, and it's, it's a future history. So it was written from 2050, looking back at 2034 in California, and, and talks about both fl- the impacts of floods and droughts. And and it's, very, it's written in a very, very accessible manner, manner. But one of the things that he points out is that um, in 2050, one of the great uh, signs of affluence is going to be a lawn. 
astroturf lawn, perhaps, or you're talking about a real lawn. Yeah. No, no, no. I'm, ta- I'm yeah. talking about a real lawn. That as as our 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 uh, uh, climatic um, regime shifts here in California, it'll be harder and harder to make California look like England. Um, which is, you know, I mean, lawns are a, a real cultural um, a, a part of our our world, um, but it's going to be harder and harder to find the water to keep that grass alive, uh, both because we'll have to start making que- decisions about where water goes, but also because the climate will be shifting in a way that will uh, put even more stress on those grasses. Will Travis, California is considering an $11 billion water bond to fix the water system. Is that going to address the concerns, the changes in, in precipitation that we've been talking about? I work for the state of California. We do not take position on Bond Act. Okay. Uh, however, uh, do you think that the Bond Act addresses the conveyance and capture issues? That uh, will it address uh, the need to have to, you know um, address some of the flooding that that, that Law is saying will happen? And in... well, let me skirt around that by saying. Uh, one of the things that Andy said is we don't have to worry about turning our taps and not having water, but one of the things we do have to be concerned about is we'll turn the tap and get salt water. Uh, because in addition to the change of the – when you're having more of the precipitation falling and it's rain and less as snow, that means you're going to have much more runoff in the winter but less in the spring and summer – Without that pulse of fresh water coming out through the bay, the salt water will get much farther inland. And he gets into the delta, which is where those pumps are that draw the drinking water that's used by 23 million Californians. So the challenge for the the water engineers in in California is that we've got a system that's designed, as as Andy explained it, uh, and it's going to change because we're going to have to use those reservoirs that we have used for storage for flood control. So you'd use them for flood control all winter long. It rains, the water comes down, you hold it in the reservoir, you quickly drain it out, and you wait for the next storm. And you do that all winter long, and then you just stop at the last storm, and you collect all that water, and then you use it. Now the challenge is to get the scientists to tell us when the next storm is. Because if we think it was the last storm and we fill the reservoirs, it means if we have another storm, we're going to have flooding. If we think there's one more storm coming, we'll empty the reservoir and wait for it, and if it doesn't come, we won't have any water. So that's the challenge we're going to be facing in re-engineering the whole system. Clearly, there's going to be a lot of money is going to be needed for making various improvements in the, the levees in the delta, uh, more storage, both underground and uh, appropriately designed above ground, conveyance systems. Uh, the Bond Act will provide money for some of that. Whether it is appropriately directed to the right projects, I will say that I am an employee of the state of California. We do not take position on Bond Acts. You say that like you've said that before. Uh, Wieslaw Maslowski, how long before climate models will give that kind of geographic certainty that people and policy um, need to, to tell whether there's another storm or not? Well, I've, I've been basically surviving all my life on uh, competing for external grants and funds, and I'm very happy to report basically that many um, U.S. Uh, funding agencies are now focusing and dedicating special resources to improve uh, regional climate prediction 
or basically improving the, the physical process representation in global models that can better address the questions that local governments and local communities uh, need to have addressed. Uh, basically, the approach is such that uh, you can do something like telescoping, zooming from a global model, which has this relatively low resolution to improve a local picture and detail of what might be happening within a particular region, such as the Bay Area here. And there's also uh, ongoing activities within the scientific community and modeling, uh, basically developing regional climate models. So you use global climate models to somehow force a regional climate model. And the regional climate model has, first of all, much higher resolution, much shorter time scale, and is focused on a particular region that is of interest to a particular application. So like in my case, we have uh, a DOE, Department of Energy, uh, support uh, for the fourth year now to develop uh, a regional Arctic climate model. And uh, if we have multiple models developed in such a way that they will improve the global model representation of particular regions, then they can feed back to global models and improve the global model predictions for the uh, near future as well as, you know, interannual to decadal uh, predictability. We've been talking about the different time frames here. I mean, you work in a profession where you look at decades and centuries. Right. Policymakers need things, uh, much shorter time frame. How soon do you think those models will be available? Well, so we're talking about whether uh, this is a, a climate model activity or weather forecasting. And I guess for the uh, many right. applications locally, you need to have improved weather forecasting, but not only, not only about the uh, air temperature and precipitation, but maybe much more involving the system, involving the land picture and the ocean circulation. If you go up to the north uh, sea ice as well and uh, you want to know whether this uh, sea ice will disappear by 30 percent uh, in the next month or uh, within the next week. So the idea is that there are different time scales and different uh, applications that need to have uh, used them. And uh, I'm talking about most of the time climate applications where uh, the weather service uh, is possibly a completely different uh, area of expertise. And I believe that weather service, national weather service, they have much more and better resources to address those issues at the very short time scales on the local scale as well. Wieslaw Maslowski is a research professor at the Naval Postgraduate School. We're discussing uh, climate issues at Commonwealth, the Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. Our other guests are Andy Gunther, Executive Director for the Center for Ecosystem Management and Restoration, and Will Travis, Executive Director of the Bay Conservation and Development Commission. Andy Gunther, you want to get on that? Yeah, um, I, I think that to the extent that local governments or regional governments are waiting until we can get uh, predictions in the two to four year time frame that they don't understand what the problem is. Um, what we can say for sure now is that we know something about the characteristics of the Bay Area 30 years from now, 40 years from now, 50 years from now. Um, the the, the uh, distribution of temperatures right now on our planet as compared to the 1970s have changed. And this current pattern was predicted by scientists using their uh, much less well-informed models than we have now in the 1970s. So the public policy question before us is whether 
we think it's worth to invest now to influence the nature of the Bay Area and other parts of our country and other parts of the world 30, 40, 50 years from now. We don't have the opportunity, we don't have the, 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 the luxury of waiting and then making the decision. If we wait until 2030, we're not going to influence what the state looks like in 2050. Maybe we will influence what the state looks like in 2080. Um, but that's what the basic physics of our modeling is telling us. And, and whether or exactly how high we might want to build a levy around SFO, I'm not sure. But I'm very comfortable right now saying we're going to have to build a levy around SFO. Well, Travis, which uh, organizations or jurisdictions around the Bay are most advanced in recognizing the inevitability that, that Andy just laid out? Um, well, San Francisco, of course, is doing a, a great deal of work. Uh, Oakland, um, there are a number of jurisdictions around the Bay, but uh, as I said, we've got uh, 55 local jurisdictions, and if we have 54 of them deal with a problem and the one doesn't, we have a problem in the region. Um, I, I think that as we talk about the, the predictions and the models, it's really important, as Andy stressed. Uh, you can talk about what's happening with the Arctic sea ice and the melt, and you glaze over very quickly and say, boy, that must be tough. If you're a polar bear, I've got to get back to doing the grocery list. And what we need to understand, I believe, as a society, is to some degree – the predictions, as Andy said, we can't wait for them to be perfect. They'll never be perfect. And it doesn't matter. If we park all of our cars, turn off all the lights, mothball all the power plants everywhere on the face of the earth right now, it's going to continue to get warmer for the next half century or more, and sea levels are going to continue to rise. How much, exactly how high, when it will get there, really doesn't matter. That's why it's important we start thinking and preparing for the inevitable now. Uh, some people look at this and say, well, if that's the case, why even try to reduce greenhouse gases? Well, it's, as my doctor tells me, I hate to give you the bad news, but you're going to die. The idea is to postpone it as long as you can. So we do have a responsibility to try to make the problem that we are leaving as a legacy for our children and our grandchildren as small a problem as we possibly can. But we do have to start preparing for the inevitable right now. And there are a couple of options. I mean, there, there's retreat, defend, and I guess there's, there's a third one that I've forgotten in terms of the changing relationship between our built environment and the waterfront. So what are those choices? Well, we view it for the region as essentially the same as a triage in a hospital room. You're going to have to, we are going to have to decide which areas, what, what are the resources that we're going to protect as long as we can. New Orleans has been called the impossible city at the inevitable location. I think you could apply the same thing to San Francisco. We're going to do everything we can to keep the financial district from going underwater. We're going to do the same for Silicon Valley, the international airports, other areas. There are some areas where we can take advantage of the enormous investment we've made in wetland restoration. Uh, I think it's important to realize that the Bay Area is the most urbanized estuary in the United States of America. 
It also has the second largest wetland restoration project outside of the Everglades. So we are doing both. That's, that's the salt marshes? That's the south? salt marshes in the north and, and south bay. So we are investing a lot in restoring wetlands. And tidal wetlands are just wonderful for dealing with climate change. Uh, all wetlands are great for flood control. They soak up flood water and they absorb wave energy. So the wider the wetland in the front, the lower the levee can be in the back. Tidal wetlands actually do something else. They take carbon out of the atmosphere and they put it into the ground. They sequester carbon. So tidal wetland restoration projects can be part of both a strategy for reducing greenhouse gases and a strategy for adapting to those impacts that you can't reduce or eliminate. So we're going to have to look at where we're going to do lots of wetland restoration and provide place for those wetlands to migrate. And then the third part of the triage is where are those special areas that can go either way or need special attention. Uh, there, what we're doing at uh, BCDC, the Bay Conservation and Development Commission, is we partnered with the Dutch and looking at some of the techniques that they've used for cities that float, uh, structures that you can move, relocate over time. In Germany, they, in Hamburg, they have occasional flooding, so they just design downtown so it will flood. And I, I call them, it's kind of the West Coast equivalent of snow days. I'm sorry, you can't go to the ferry building today. It's closed. It's flooded. But come back tomorrow. So there are different ways that I think we can build along the shoreline and can adapt to the inevitable sea level rise. And, it, yeah, and I think what Will is noting about come back tomorrow, I, I think it's a really important point to note that, that sea level rise itself is a very gradual process. And when people hear the sea level rise going up at three millimeters a year on average, they think, I mean, what's the problem? Um, I, it's so I guess maybe in 10 years I'll have to put galoshes on if I want to keep my feet dry. But, but the flooding is an episodic event that is driven by several different things, one of which, say, for coastal flooding around the Bay Area, is the sea level. It's also the tide. And then the weather. When you get a low-pressure system and there's less, in essence, pressure on the water, the ocean actually comes up. And so it, things become magnified. So the, the people who are really doing a lot of thinking about this is the insurance industry. And and um, and anybody who there's some very accessible stuff produced by by Lloyd's of London or whatever, but you can look and see that that just a foot rise in sea level takes a one in a hundred year flood and turns it into a one in ten year flood. So imagine the disaster of some storm with sea level and everything flooding and damaging the runway at Oakland Airport. And we get it together to clean it up and repair it. And, and, it, and then it happens again in 10 years. They already have a little of that going on now. <laughs> and, and remember, we tend to think about, people talk about, well, how high will the sea level be in 2100? But the other, one of the other things we know is that what, wherever it is, it's going to be going up faster then than it is now. Uh, and so I think it's really an important thing to realize that the damages come from these episodic events uh, where even though sea level itself is a gradual increase over time. 
Mm-hmm. It raises a question about science and public communication because a lot of the, what comes out of scientific bodies, the IPCC and others, is a lo- focuses on sea level rise. And a lot of that, uh, people can look at that and say, hey, it's too slow or I'll be dead by then. Or it's, it's too gradual to really, it's Al Gore's you know, frog in a, in a gradually boiling uh, pot of boiling, boiling water. So Wieslaw Maslowski, let's talk about the communication of science uh, to, to, the, to the general public, whether the scientists ought to do a better job or it's not their job to do that. Well, scientists definitely ought to do a better job. However, the point is that... Uh, as a scientific community, uh, we don't have in our contract signed anything related to public relation and outreach. Uh, this is this is at our or your free time, and uh, as depends how much time you commit to communicating and how well communicating. Uh, that's the message that comes out in the end uh, in the news media and uh, the internet. The point about uh, scientists is that. Uh, we can talk about uncertainties, but we are much in much more difficult position to give you numbers. Mm-hmm. So uh, as, as Will and, and uh, discussion went on before, whether it's going to be uh, a f- three millimeter per year or five millimeter per year or something else, we can talk about uncertainty on those estimates, but not a given number. In the Arctic, for example, there is this discussion how soon the all ice sea ice will disappear during summer. So we'll open the uh, routes for navigation, uh, natural resource exploration, tourism, and uh, what have you. And uh, the thing is that uh, we know that it could happen as soon as within next decade, or it can happen until uh, maybe 2100. So there is a range, and there is uh, maybe some higher uh, Probability on the middle, in the middle somewhere, but the range is such that it could be something like 2020 or maybe something like 2080. We should be prepared as soon as 2020, but also think about how we proceed if it's going to be uh, all the way out until 2080. We have a political system that doesn't handle that kind of uncertainty well, or that, that time frame. We have a political system that deals on very short attention spans, short media cycles, short election cycles. So does the political system need to change, or the scientific establishment in, in, the, in the way it communicates uncertainty? Well, I think we, we need more uh, uh, citizen science and citizen, citizen scientists uh, to be basically growing up within this country and uh, elsewhere throughout the world. So those people understand well the science, and they are well qualified by their education and expertise to communicate to the public. And I think that uh, uh, we, as, as a scientific community, we're being pushed by various funding agencies to provide some outreach, but it's not going to be anytime soon at the level that, for example, I've experienced in the recent couple of years, how much time it's involved to, to communicate to the public, to the media, and to, to the newspapers. Wieslaw Maslowski is a research professor at the Naval Postgraduate School. Other guests today at Climate One are Andy Gunther, executive director of the Center for Ecosystem Management and Restoration, and Will Travis, executive director of the Bay Conservation and Development Commission. I'm Greg Dalton. Um, Andy Gunther, let's get your take on that, on, on the gap between science and, and, uh, and public policy and, and how to fill that, that knowledge gap or that communication gap between science and public policy. Uh, that's a... It's a fundamentally important role, and I think there are shortages on both sides. That is, in the policy community, people want access to the most recent science, but they don't have the training or the time to go and extract it themselves. 
the scientific community, as Wieslau is pointing out, often have absolutely no incentive other than their own, the goodness of their own heart and their desire to make a difference to add on to all their other responsibilities the job of communicating. Um, and so it does fall to people who can maybe have a foot in both uh, uh, places to, to do that communication. I think it's really important, too, to recognize a couple of things. First is, when you are trained as a scientist, you are trained to remove yourself from your work. You know, so scientists tend to be really impressed by data way more than the public is impressed by data. And, and, and I have seen scientists communicate and they'll put up some complex chart and then they'll say, see? And, and, and they don't understand the role that, that that passion, relevance, and emotion play in communication. Um, I am... Uh, I feel doing an inadequate job of sitting in for Peter Ward. Uh, Peter's new book that's just coming out, called The Flooded Earth, um, starts with a description of Miami in 2100. And in fact, it's, you know, Barnes & Noble will let you read it online to try and get you to buy the book. I would encourage you to read it. It's an interesting piece of scientific communication. There's no numbers in it. There is just taking the model predictions, and then really applying it to what that means to the water system, the transportation system, the, the sewage system, and therefore the political implications of that. Um, more and more now you're hearing um, our nation's military leaders mm-hmm. speaking up. And in essence what they're doing is they are applying science using their expertise of threat assessment and, and they are able to speak in ways that are much more accessible to people's thinking about uh, the kinds of, of, of problems that will ensue, the political cascades of events that can be created by these ecological changes or these population changes. Um, the amount of, and finally, the amount of disinformation that's being sent to the public, of the amount of outright lying or that cherry-picking of data where you, you just select one thing, maybe from one place, and then you claim that represents the globe, or, or you, know, you read one article and you start a blog and become an expert on why you know, all the world's climate scientists and the National Academy of Science is wrong and everything. That, that kind of thing is, I think, beginning to uh, get the scientific community to become a little more aggressive in terms of speaking out. Um, and everyone has seen the kind of like character assassination that went on around these, these stolen emails. And now, in fact, sort of the Fifth Commission has just come out and saying that the scientists really were doing nothing wrong and nothing in those emails has anything to do with the validity of climate science. And yet, has that been widely covered? Not nearly as widely covered as the accusations. So it's much easier to make these accusations than it is to defend and explain, and that has, is a disincentive for scientists to get out there. It's like, well, what do I get? If I really get out front, I attract the attention of these professionals whose job it is to make me look silly. And So I think that, that, that it's, it's also incumbent upon, I mean, I wanted to thank all of you for being here. It shows your interest in learning about this issue, and then 
you can also become a communicator and talk about it. Um, and, and more and more we're seeing people, uh, scientists and the, in their local communities, people are recognizing, wow, I've lived here for 40 years. You know, it doesn't look like it did when I was a kid. And so that kind of communication I also think is going to be very important because in the end, science is only a piece of what informs our political process. And, and in fact, I think the scientific community believes it's a pretty small piece. <laughs> and the audience will have a chance to communicate uh, in just a moment. I'd welcome you to line up at the microphone if you'd like to make a brief comment or question. Um, though you talk, Andy Gunther, you talk about the panels, into panels that reviewed the climate science, and they did say the science was sound, but they did admonish that some of the scientists for not being as open or transparent. So Wiesla Maslowski, I'll ask to ask you if you feel like you're going to be more transparent uh, with your data or more open than you have in the past as a result of this recent episode. Well, from my point of view, uh, I always respond to any request for data and model outputs, so I, I don't have anything to hide. And uh, the point is that uh, with uh, being more open and more um, outgoing in terms of uh, communicating and uh, making your data available, basically the format for peer review publications, at least until recently, has been such that you publish your data, and if somebody wants to uh, do a different, uh, separate analysis on, on your data, they definitely should have access to the data. It doesn't mean that the data always is available on the public website to, uh, for access to for, for anybody, but if you need to look into this data and has been, for example, funded by the National Science Foundation or some other agency in other countries, this data, the legacy of the data is that it should be available publicly to anybody who wants to access it. So it's more a logistics issue rather than just uh, being trying to be secretive and trying to withhold the data from, from other people. Uh, to, to make a, a more positive comment on this issue is that more recently, many uh, peer review uh, publications, journals, they allow you to add uh, um, media connection or media links to your paper. So you have a hard copy paper, which most of the time now open, it shows up on the, on the uh, internet, on a website for that particular journal, and you can actually click on the link which is a media link, and you can actually access much more information that this paper uh, provides by itself. And this is becoming more and more common, where you can actually basically have access to the data, description of an analysis, actually a description, or, or even the actual results that are being summarized in the particular paper. Keep in mind that most of the time papers are you know, several pages, and the amount of information that is actually put into this paper, it's outrageous. So uh, it's hard to, to describe everything there. And, Greg, I, I also have to say that um, while there have been, maybe there were some data sets or some code, computer code for some models that were not readily accessible, the amount of data, the amount of source code that is available on the Internet is extraordinary. And people who are, you need to ask yourself, what information is this person looking for that they don't have? Uh, because I have looked into some of these claims and found them to be completely without foundation. And in fact, people making the claims do not have the qualifications or the skills to even utilize the information that they are asking for. And secondly, the real, one of the criticisms had to do with how the scientists responded to Freedom of Information Act requests. Mm -hmm. Or uh, that's the American version. Though. I can't remember the British acronym for the law. Um, I have seen the Freedom of Information Act used as a weapon against scientists who are producing information. 
in which a Freedom of Information Act request comes in to a public university or a government laboratory that requires, in essence, the laboratory shut down in order to make copies of every single data sheet and every single freezer custody record and and produce all this information to deliver to somebody. Um, And uh, that kind of, of, of... of, of request was was never made in the past, and so so there is part of this has to do with a sense that the people making the requests um, uh, really have an ulterior motive that is beyond just getting the information in order to conduct an independent analysis of their own. Andy Gunther is executive director of the Center for Ecosystem Management and Restoration. Let's have our audience question, please. Thank you. Um, uh, a few months ago, I had the chance to meet with uh, Jackie McGlade, who is the director of the European EPA, and she's also a scientist. And she was talking about climate projects uh, ranging from helping um, hunters up in Lapland dealing with the um, effects of uh, the reindeer like losing their habitat to designing floating communities in Holland to protecting the billion investment of the port of Hamburg to providing drought-resistant seeds in Hungary. So my question is, um, do you see similar efforts either in California or in our country that is sort of helping communities to build up the resilience against uh, climate change? Will Travis, resilience is a big word in the adaptation community. Uh, we are just beginning to do that in California, and I think we have an awful lot to learn from other parts of the world. But uh, it is, it's clear we're going to have to um, – uh, we look at it from the perspective that we have to stop protecting San Francisco Bay the way it is now and abandon the folly that we can ever restore to the way it was in the past. And instead, we can, we're going to have to design it for the way it will be in the future when it has different water levels, different salinity, different temperature, different chemistry, probably different species. Do adaptive management get out in front of the changes that will take place if we're to continue to have a a place where we want to live and can live? Thank you. Next question. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Um, So obviously risk is a really big player in this game, and uh, for the financial markets, We need to understand the risks in order to design where we're going to apply capital to have the best and strongest impacts. So um, do you see much movement or uh, potential movement towards cross-disciplinary partnerships? So a couple times uh, the insurance companies were mentioned as excellent agencies for assessing risk. Is there partnership opportunities between the public and private sphere, between some of these groups that are you know, have made their specialty uh, really designing the impact and uh, applying that for the scientists because as a genetic engineer myself, scientists aren't always the best communicators just as a personality. <laughs> um, and so finding ways for us to be able to work with other groups who have a better uh, maybe PR campaign or a better public persona could be very valuable. Thank um, you. So, thank That's you. A good question. I, I would call your attention to an organization called Ceres. C-E-R-E-S dot org. And uh, they are working with the insurance industry and in the investment community to develop an overall strategy for investing in an appropriate, resilient fashion. Yeah, I also think, um, just to add, that uh, a key factor for the financial community uh, uh, and the movement of capital is the proper pricing 
of uh, pro- proper price signals being delivered to our market. So, so right now, it is uh, our, the market operates with the clear assumption that there is no cost associated with releasing greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. Um, and we know that's not true. And as long as we continue to allow that, that you know, our quote-unquote free market, which has all sorts of, you know, boundaries placed on it, it's not really a free market, but that, that the idea that we will not, if we continue that in essence subsidy, the future is subsidizing us, then we won't have the, the, our experts in the financial world um, who, who can help us move capital and use it most efficiently won't have the correct signal about the, the overall cost of their decisions. One more comment I wanted to make in response to the uh, insurance industry. Actually, I'm aware, I know people who have been scientists who have been directly funded by insurance industry to to do their research, which was was sort of relevant and was addressing some of the key issues for particular uh, insurance companies. So uh, this this cross-interactions or uh, uh, cross-cutting interests uh, between the scientific community and applied uh, part of it, such as the insurance industry, has been going on, and I believe this is with the climate change and uh, warming might actually uh, get much more increased activity just naturally out of itself. Lloyd's of London produced a great report two years ago called Adapt or Bust, and it's, it's really for the insurance industry, but it's very, very accessible in terms of summarizing the science and talking about the future risk associated with these changes that we're going to see. Next question, please. Yes. Uh, my, my question uh, probably should be directed to Professor Maslowski uh, being at the Naval Postgraduate School. Uh, as, as you know, the United States is the only major country that has n- never, signed, never ratified the United Nations Law of the Sea Treaty, which has been suggested by every chief of naval operations and uh, various uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs. And now that the, the Arctic... Ice melt has become a, a reality, which everybody accepts, I believe. Uh, uh, we are really not in, at the same level for the rulemaking procedures that will be needed once this becomes a major transportation route. And I'm just wondering, uh, is anything happening at, at your institution to convince uh, our Congress that this is something they should take up very soon? Well, uh, the Naval Postgraduate School, thank you. That's a very excellent question. I, I appreciate your bringing this to the, to the I'm agenda a, I'm here. I'm a retired Naval officer, and I was involved Perfect. with this. So, I so uh, within the Naval Postgraduate School, uh, we can basically provide uh, expertise, scientific expertise advice to uh, the Navy uh, uh, upper-level uh, administration, Pentagon. Uh, but it's very interesting that you bring this topic to, uh, with this question because within the last couple of days, uh, the Chief of Naval Operations, uh, Admiral Four Star Admiral uh, Roughhead, he was briefing the uh, Senate committee uh, in terms of actually being pro supportive of signing up the uh, Law of the Sea. And one of the, one of the key arguments was uh, made actually that if we're not at the table, we're not making any change. So we are just basically a bypasser, and we can make much more change and contribute better and actually turn the situation in such a way that will be more beneficial to our country when we are sitting at a table as a, as a co-signer of this, of this treaty. 
Next question. Try to get through the line here. In the last, we have about ten minutes left. We'll try to get through the questions Someone briefly. Thank go, you. Galactic level. Um, how does the current climatic change compare to the global warming uh, era around the year one thousand when Greenland became Greenland? And the second part of this is: Are there any modalities, given the uh, difficulty in ascertaining uh, somewhat remote uh, climatic uh, data? That, uh, such as ice cores, that can help uh, one evaluate this uh, situation. That's a question to me. Uh, first, the 1,000 years, uh, as far as uh, the record goes for the Arctic sea ice, the Arctic sea ice has been around for at least 1,000 years, actually many more 1,000 years than, than 1,000 years ago. So the current change and current decline is, is uh, quite unprecedented. Uh, as far as the modality, uh, there are some models, uh, at least I'm aware of several uh, studies, that would suggest that our climate can operate a different, not only one uh, kind of status quo uh, mode of operation. Uh, however, uh, that other model, uh, mo- model uh, scenario definitely will involve some changes in climate in the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, there's also connection from uh, what's happening in the uh, northern polar region in the Arctic uh, to uh, um, um, the uh, uh, climate over Asia, monsoon system. And actually, part of the reason, at least to my understanding, why countries such as Japan and China are very heavily involved in studying the Arctic climate is that there is a strong belief and strong evidence in uh, publications that changes in the uh, high north uh, will affect the weather and climate uh, in Southeast Asia, at least, uh, the the Pacific Rim side. Next question, please. There's a study came out, was recently published from MIT, which was publicized a few months before that, uh, predicting five degrees, sorry to speak in Fahrenheit, five degrees Fahrenheit of warming with uh, with economic and governmental action, and nine degrees Fahrenheit of warming in this century without it, and that's not counting uh, outgassing from the permafrost. There are other discussions that seem to be coming up around the fringes of the IPCC, at least, about the possibility that we might be in a runaway situation and that we might actually be moving to a new climate mode that will be quite different to what we have now and that some of that will happen quite fast. Uh, Do you have recent work that addresses this and how do you see that affecting the next IPCC report? Well, personally, uh, I'm not in a business. Personally, my group, my research, uh, is uh, trying to understand the processes and uh, what happened uh, in the past in the Arctic up to the present. As far as the study that are suggesting uh, definitely a quali- quantitative change if we don't do nothing compared to if we start reducing the greenhouse emissions. Uh, I'm aware of actually one very recent last year uh, publication by Washington et al., uh, where they used the uh, U.S. Uh, uh, NCAR, National Center for Atmospheric Research, uh, CCSM model, to look into the, uh, this 21st century scenario uh, when we start decreasing the greenhouse gas emissions. And clearly there is a significant change that has uh, been simulated, modeled by those uh, studies uh, through the end of the century, uh, comparing, the, comparing the scenario if we continue uh, business as usual compared to if we stop, maybe go back to like uh, late 1990s uh, concentrations or maybe even uh, much more reduced. So definitely there is evidence based on model uh, uh, studies that are suggesting that if we start changing our activities in terms of 
emission of greenhouse gases now, there will be significant change that will be measurable uh, at various levels. Rieslav Maslowski is a research professor at the Naval Postgraduate School discussing climate change at Climate One. Next question, please. Yeah, we spoke about making the climate change problem as small as possible for ourselves and our children, and we know with you know, the more, more ga- greenhouse gas pollution we put into the atmosphere, the more severe impacts, the more costly, the more difficult it will be to deal, cope with the impacts that come, and that some leading climate scientists, including James Hansen of NASA, have said that we need to reduce carbon dioxide in the atmosphere from a current level of about 390 parts per million to about 350 in order to restore our sea ice, avoid truly kind of unacceptable consequences for ourselves, human society, and the planet. And so I'm wondering about, um, I, I don't think that those messages about that we need to read, about the risks that come along with different concentrations of greenhouse gases and the need for immediate and deep cuts in greenhouse gases right now. I don't think those messages are getting across like they should be to the public and policymakers, and I wonder if you could comment on that. Andy Gunther? I mean, part of the issue here has to do with the fact that we operate with a pretty significant discount rate in our, in our world. And so future benefits are discounted to a, to a very small amount compared to present benefits. And, and that's something that we have grown to accept, and we are now in a situation where we have, we have really strong confidence that we know something about the future, and that we know that what we're doing now is influencing that. So, so communicating that, you're also fighting the natural tendency of humans to put off or discount things that are in the future. And, and thus people talk about um, their, their children or their grandchildren and what we're bringing to them. And, uh, I mean, I tell people that if we don't get busy, the only thing we're going to be able to do is ask for our children's forgiveness uh, when they're our age. Um, and, and yet that you're, you're saying that doesn't seem to be getting through. And I think that uh, a lot of people are beginning to think that we, in order to have more effect, we need to talk more about the evidence that we can see right now uh, and, and then build that. But I also think part of your, uh, I'd just like to comment that, that the importance of individual action cannot be overstated, in my opinion. Some people say, oh, well, what am I, what, what difference do I make? But one of the things that happens if you take individual action is that you realize it really wasn't that hard and that you can do more. And I think a lot of people now seem to be operating in a fear zone where, where, where the answer to this question involves drastic reduction in their, um, uh, their economic well-being and, and their, their lifestyle, when in fact there are a lot of changes that we can make to begin to bring the curve over. We have a lot of work to do. We have a long way to go. But individual action is absolutely the start. We have three minutes and two questions. Let's try to get through this. Yes, sir. Thank you. Uh, one comment, uh, I totally agree with the notion that those who have their foot in two ground science and government agencies can play an effective role. As an ex-scientist, and today as a professional engineer working with the state of California, before coming here I was trying to encourage one of non-believer of effect of climate change to come with me. And uh, he said, no, you won't be able to convince me. 
he always referred to um, this graph you might be familiar with, the um, Vostok Ice Corp studies. And I promised to him that when I'm here, I would bring this point to the attention of the speakers to see whether they can provide me with the answer how this issue can intensify the effect of those people to be non-believer. Let's do this really briefly. If you want to talk to him offline, you can do that to give him uh, the response he needs. I'm not, I'm not sure if I recognize the How about figure. we look, you, you guys can meet up afterwards, and then we're going to go to the next question, please. I, I believe Vostok Station is from Antarctica, right? So the Antarctica changes in warming has been quite different recently over the last decades compared to the northern ha- hemisphere. Uh, the point probably that this person is trying to convey is that we've seen the variability and warming in the Earth climate in the past uh, millennia and uh, millions of years ago. My response to that, I've seen this argument and I've responded to this argument before, is that uh, millions of years ago we didn't have billions of people populating the coast. So if we had a sea level increase by a couple meters, nobody has noticed. Thank you. No one's uh, Florida seafront condo was affected. Last question, please. A lot of our officials seem to be stymied by the fact that we're in this financial crisis and don't have any funding for any of this re-engineering of coastlines and all. Is there any possibility that we could have a transaction fee on financial things so that there would be some funding? It could even be a penny on a dollar just to get some funding coming into the government that could be distributed for all these projects that need to be done urgently. How are we going to pay for all this? Tough question. Let's go. Will, you, you deal with uh, governments who... Uh... <laughs> well, I think the important thing to note is what Andy pointed out earlier. Um, this isn't an expense. It's an investment. And for every dollar we invest now, hard though it may be to find that dollar, it'll save us 4 to 5 to $6 dollars in paying for the damage and responding to it later. Andy Gunther, last word. I think that it's really, uh, I would encourage everyone to recognize that scientists are a very conservative lot. And they don't get any benefit from projecting beyond what their data support. And particularly with regards to sea level rise, If you go back and read the last IPCC report, you will find that the projections in that report are now, they might even be be less than the current minimum thinking. The maximum then is less than the current minimum thinking now. Um, And so I would encourage you all to recognize that that's an inherent part of science and the idea that there's some sort of global hoax that's being perpetrated that started with Svante Arrhenius in 1896 when he proposed the theory of global warming is, is so beyond the pale and so is, has such a poor understanding of how the scientific process and the scientific community operates. Um, and if we get lulled into thinking that somehow this is just a game people are playing, we're going to find ourselves in a very, very deep hole um, with not a lot of time to build a ladder to get out. But it'll make a great film called Hot, Wet, and Uncertain. 
Wieslaw Maslowski, last word. Okay, in, in a closing, I want to just say that definitely I do agree that uh, uh, scientific uh, research requires much more resources. But it's not just necessarily new money, but it might be more than, uh, I hate to say it, but uh, you know, changing the, the, the money w- w- in terms of the relevance uh, of the societal within the country, within the state, within the county, as a matter of fact. What's more important uh, to this particular region, then let's try to focus our resources on that particular question and help have scientists try to help us to address. Uh, but I wanted to close, actually, on more... I don't know, optimistic and forward-looking message, saying that, uh, to me, uh, we can also, and this administration, this current president, uh, presidential administration, I believe is going that direction. We're not exploring and uh, taking advantage of free energy, which is sun. And I'm not saying that the sun can uh, start uh, running our cars, but definitely sun can be used to heat our houses. And that we're in the uh, 21st century, and we're fighting wars for uh, fossil fuels, exporting it and uh, going through a, a major headaches to get these fossil fuels here and use it, burn it, basically. And we're not ready to take advantage of free energy. This is, this is quite surprising to me. And I believe that efforts should be in parallel to try to mitigate and get ready for climate change as it's happening to basically shift our technology and the focus to start using an energy that's available without much of a headache just involving technology. Thank you. Wieslaw Maslowski is research professor at the Naval Postgraduate School. We've been discussing climate change also with Will Travis, executive director of Bay Conservation and Development Commission, and Andy Gunther, executive director of the Center for Ecosystem Management and Restoration. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming to Climate One today.